but it's not just that I'm running late. I was running early until about 8.40. It sounds like you were running early. <laughs> until about 8.40, I was actually running early. Okay, so we're starting a new bracha today, which is, Salach lanu avinu ki chatanu. Forgive us, Hashem, because, for we have sinned, not because, for we have sinned. Machalanu malkenu, pardon us, our king, ki fashanu, because we have sinned. It's in Shmona Esrei. Okay. Okay, it's, I think, the sixth bracha. Ki mocha v'soleachata, because you are the one who pardons, you're the one who forgives. So we asked for forgiveness and pardon, and you're the one who pardons, you're the one who forgives. Baruch Hashem, you are the source of all bracha, you're the blessed one, Hashem. Hanun, who is gracious, hamarbe lesloach, and marbe, like making a lot of it. He it, frequently, constantly, is very great to forgive. Okay, so the first issue not issue. The first point to make over here is really not on the words themselves per se, um, but on what we're doing in this bracha. So this bracha follows the request of asking Hashem to help us do tshuva, right? Bring us back to you in tshuva, bring us close in Torah. Okay. So it's customary, and I think probably we all know this. There it is. Okay, it's customary to hit the left side of your chest. Like when you say vidui on Yom Kippur, and you have all those viduis in the Shemona Esrei. So also over here, you say slach lanu avinu, and you say ki chatanu, and you hit your chest when you say chatanu. We have sinned. And machalanu malkenu ki pashanu. We have transgressed. And you also hit with your fist, you hit your chest. Which right away tells you that we're saying vidui, except we're in the middle of Shemona Esrei. But there is an element here of vidui in this bracha. So then the next question is, why is there an element of vidui in a bracha? Okay. So to understand this, we have to look at what we're saying in the bracha. We're saying, Hashem, please forgive us. And a minute ago, we just said, Hashem, please help us do tshuva. So what's the missing piece between please help me do tshuva and please forgive me is actually doing tshuva, right? right? Like, you know, you say, please help me do tshuva, but then you got to do it. And then please forgive me is really after you did tshuva. Although over here, we're going to talk about it a little. It's a little funny because it's sort of like slach lano avinu ki It's all together, right? But there, this element of tshuva. And the first part of tshuva is vidui. Okay. So, the first piece is that there's a Gemara in Brachos. Oh, that's funny. It says it's Brachos, page, um, Dav Zayin, Amud Aleph. I just spent, like, the shir I did yesterday, we had this whole Gemara from Dav Zayin, Amud Beis. But if you don't get to look at it inside, you're certainly never going to notice what's on the other side of the page. Okay, that says, Tova mardus achas belibo shel adam mimea malkios. One 
upheaval in a person's heart is worth a hundred blows from the outside. In other words, if you hit yourself once inside, it's worth a hundred times being hit from the outside. Is a bigger impact. When you say to yourself, oh my gosh, I did the wrong thing, that has a bigger impact on you than when somebody else says to you a hundred times, you know you did the wrong thing. Okay? <laughs> Pretty clear. All right? Okay, so number one is the value of that. So coming in and saying, Hashem, help me do tshuva, and here I am doing tshuva. So hitting my own heart has a stronger effect than, let's say, if a person would deserve from their sin to have the in lash them 39 times, or 100 times, according to this Gemar, right? The, the achievement we can make in recognizing where I'm really holding and that I've gone wrong and that I need to fix it is stronger with these little tiny blows on our heart than what anyone else can tell us. We just have to pay attention to that. And the fact that we have to pay attention to that then helps us understand why do we actually hit our chest? Especially if you think about the fact that in Shemona Esrei, we're pretty much staying still. The whole thing of Shemona Esrei is this change on the inside the change of ratzon, of our will, and aligning that with Hashem's will. And that's really not about action. In the bigger picture, we have to bring that back down to action. We started with brachos, we worked our way up through Pesuket de Zimra and Shemona and Shema and Shemona Esrei. And once we get to this place where we can really affect our ratzon, having built up to it, we're going to have to take that back with us. We're going to have to work our way back down into the rest of the day and all of our activities so that our activities now become changed by the change of the will that happened in Shemona Esrei. That's true. But in Shemona Esrei is not really the place that you do the action. In Shemona Esrei is where you change the root of everything. So why would you then move and take an action? Okay. So there's something that Rabbi Leichter says... which I think is relevant over here. Um, I mean, it's definitely relevant over here, but it's not exactly where he was referencing it. He says, there is a concept of imuna. Mm -hmm. And typically, when a person is learning Torah, so if there's anything that isn't clear, you want to identify that the, you don't understand it, and then piece by piece analyze all the parts until you figure out where the problem is and what the solution is. So you use your intellect and you carefully analyze, and in this way you come to greater clarity, and you, that's, how you, that's how you learn Torah. But he says with emuna you don't really want it to be based on that same kind of process of intellectual inquiry. That doesn't mean that you can't have questions and have answers. But the foundation that makes your emuna solid is not based on questions and answers in the mind. That's a nice piece. So, you know, I think of Rabbi, um, Rabbi Kellerman has this little pair of very valuable books 
called Permission to Receive and Permission to Believe. And I think in the introduction of at least one of those, he explains why he named them like this. Why, what do you mean permission to believe? Because emuna is not based on what someone's going to teach you. So all he's doing in this, not all he's doing, the point of the book was, I'm going to tell you things that remove the intellectual barrier to then working on the emuna, right? Because if a person grows up believing that if it isn't um, what they say on TV is what the scientists <laughs> say, then therefore it's not true. You'd be yeah. naive, right? Or gullible. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, people who grew up in the Soviet Union really have a struggle. Oh, yeah. If they grew up under communism, I mean, now it's already been so many years that there's a new generation that didn't exactly. But the kids who grew up, in a time where everything was laughed at about God and there were lessons in school to teach you to trust in Stalin, who's a real person, and not God, who's an opiate of the masses, right? You're just gullible, you're foolish, you're unenlightened. Okay, you so permit. You have that here. You have that here totally. also, it just usually was science, which is not, that's what they were saying in the Soviet Union also. So then you have an intellectual or emotional barrier that gets in the way of opening yourself up to your emuna to develop. So it isn't the intellectual argument that's going to help you gain the emuna. What it's going to do is take away the barrier. That's that concept of permission to believe. Give yourself permission to realize that wouldn't be a sign that I'm stupid. It wouldn't be a sign that I'm naive. There are plenty of intelligent scientists who also believe in God as a creator. Like They're not contradictory. It could be I don't know enough to realize that it's reasonable. So then get, the information comes from there. But that's not really how you build Amuna. Building Amuna has to be through experience. Now that's not an entire surprise because we've seen that Rav Hirsch defines Amuna that way when he says that, when, when he comments on the Pasuk that says that Avraham he'emin bahashem believed in God. That would be how you translate it. That's ridiculous. What do you mean he believed in God? You just told me he had a whole, a whole prophecy. He's in a conversation with him. You don't have a conversation with someone and say, by the way, he believed in him. Okay? He says, Ha'amin is trusted in him. Trust is based on experience. You see that, a, that let's say, in your life, a person has always shown up on time. So if they're not on time, then you think we had this in school the other day. There was a kid who was supposed to show up for his tutor. And the tutor's walking around like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Should I just go home? Like, and we checked with the home. They had dropped him off. He was there. Like, you know, he's at school somewhere. And, you know, you could think, oh, he's, you know, playing hooky. Maybe he's hiding. He's having fun. He's on the score. And, and the tutor said, you know what? He's always so responsible. He always comes on time. So maybe he's like feeling sick. I went to the bathroom or something. Like it doesn't, yeah. right? Now, the truth is even that is a kind of avoda because sometimes we're so quick to assume that people are bad or doing the wrong thing or we're so quick to assume they were trying to offend us or hurt our feelings. Mm-hmm. So even there, it's an avoda. It should be just natural. 
right? Like, well, I know they're always on time. There must be a reason. But really, sometimes we have to stop and remind ourselves, you know, what has this person demonstrated to me in the past? It turned out that this kid has more than one tutor. And most days they meet the other tutor is like on the third floor. And this tutor they meet on the first floor. And they got mixed up and they were sitting and waiting for 20 minutes on the third floor, okay, and, and very patiently, you know, but very sweet. So it was a mistake, but they had been responsible, they had shown up on time, they had waited for a lot of the things that they had done right, you know, and this, this yeah. could happen. And the fact that the tutor recognized that and said there must be something, maybe sick, maybe, you know, that's something you have to teach yourself and train yourself a little bit. But the basis of it is what you have experienced and then when you can't see it, you remind yourself of what you know because you did see it. That's Imuna. We've talked about that a lot of times. Okay? So in the case of the tutor, I can't see the kid who's behaving responsibly now. Where are they? But then I remind myself of what I know from past experience. And then I allow my behavior and my, and my feelings to be influenced by that instead of by the lack of what I'm seeing, by the history of what I have seen. Okay, that's Amuna, which means Amuna is based on experience, on feeling something. So building Amuna means you have to, and the Bali Musar always talk about this, right? Visualize. That means you remember something, stop and actually work on remembering it very, very vividly. What did it, what were you hearing? What were you smelling? What were you seeing? What were you feeling? How was the temperature at the time of that event that you're trying to recall? Making it as alive as possible will have the strongest effect on your emuna. Because that's where emuna comes from. Okay. So this is the concept of using in, in Musar, the koachatsi, or the power of your imagination to create an experience that's so vivid, even though it's not being experienced in the moment, you experience it through the imagination. Okay. When we take our hand and we hit our chest and we say, Hashem, forgive me, I'm doing tshuva. Help me do tshuva, forgive me. Taking the hand and putting it on the chest helps us to create that bridge to tshuva that's actually activated. So the main thing in Shemona Esra is that we've changed our will. That's the, the crux of tshuva. But we can't say tshuva has happened <coughs> until some step has been made forward. So really the main step is the vidui, because the first step in any tshuva is vidui. But we accompany the vidui with a small action so that the vidui is like locked in. <laughs> right? So the vidui is fully experienced. And that helps create the connection to repair the distance that sin has brought between us and God. So the, the words of the vidui with the action pulled together helps bring us back actively to Hashem in a way that we may have spoiled through our sin. Okay, so the Rambam says, When a person does tshuva and he is returning from his sin, repenting of his sin, 
Chayav lehisvados lifnei hakel baruchu. He must, lehisvados means to speak out a confession. It's to acknowledge that I was wrong and you were right regarding his sin before Hashem. May he be blessed. As it says, Isho isha kiyasu mikol chatos ha'adam. This is a pasuk. If a person does a sin, so he has to bring a carbon, he has this, and they have to verbally express the sin that they did. You have to be willing to say, I did this sin, I did it wrong. It's very hard to do. <laughs> it's really very hard to say, I did it. It's hard enough to say, I'm sorry. It's even harder to say, I'm sorry, I spoke out of place. What I just said was mean. I'm sorry, I lost my temper. You know, it, it's hard enough for people to say sorry. But to actually put into words that I did something wrong and what it is, it's really harder. It's harder to face in ourselves. But that's really what vidui is. Ze vidui dvarim. This is called confession with words. The vidui ze mitzvah And this vidui is a positive commandment. Saying vidui is a mitzvah from the Torah. Rav Hirsch gives a wonderful definition. He says, now, okay, he says, toda, he's referring to a korban toda. Okay? We think of the word thank you, right? A, gra- a gratitude, a thanks offering. He says, toda means the recognition and acknowledgement of what God means to us in particular. This is in his commentary on Tehillim, which we will get to a little bit more, I think. That's what it means. Okay, so this is an idea that we've learned from the Pachad Yitzchak. I wanted to go take it out, but they're running this late. It's not going to happen. Um, I'll make a note for it. Uh, Rav Hutner on Hanukkah, where we have lehodosu, lahalel, right? Lehodos. So he talks about this idea that there are um, two kinds of hoda'a. There's hoda'a that means gratitude, and there's hoda'a that means um, like confession, vidui. It's the word hoda'a also. Toda'a and vidui are like the same word, right? Just different conjugations. So what's the connection? Gratitude and confession don't seem like, not certainly the same parts of the conversation that you might be having with somebody. Okay, so Rav Hutner says really in both cases, it's the acknowledgement of one that they're indebted to the other, that they have, are somehow uh, vulnerable or on the receiving end, and that the other is the one who's, who's giving or has the power to give or who has been gracious so when you say thank you, some people have a hard time even saying thank you, which is pretty sad. <laughs> you see it. You see it often enough. It's a real phenomenon. Okay, It's the same thing as the trouble of confessing, of doing a vidui, only just in a smaller scale. Because saying thank you means what I'm saying is that if not for what you did for me, I would be missing something. Okay? I am missing and you provided for me. That's hard for people, especially in certain kinds of work environments. Because if I say thank you, then that would suggest that I couldn't have done it 
without you so then I'm not good enough and I don't do my job well and who knows whatever baggage people carry around you know and when a person confesses and admits they did something wrong and they say you know I should not have spoken to you like that they're also saying you're the one who has you've been tolerant or you've suffered or you've you're right and I'm wrong the the lack is in me and the wholeness is in you. And that is a hard thing for a person to have to say. The Medrash says that when Yehuda was judging Tamar, right? Tamar suddenly shows up. She's expecting twins. She, as far as anyone knows, is not married and is legally bound to Yehuda's family because she was married to his son who died without children. Then she married the next son through Yibum. He died without children. So she is, she's sort of married to the family. She can't, she would need a divorce. And she can't get that because she hasn't had chalitza. I mean, she'd have to have chalitza to be set free from the family in order to marry someone else. And they know that hasn't happened. And Yehuda was the judge. And he said, she'll have to be taken out and burned. And she said, Hakerna, please recognize the person whose staff and cloak this is, that's the father of the child or children. And he said, Sadka Mimani. She's, she's right. It's me. Sadka Mimani, it's from me. This is my child. Okay, that's not such an easy thing to do in public. Especially when the consequences are so great. Now he's admitting that he did something that's not really so nice. It might be legal, but it's not something to be proud of. Okay, no, I mean legal as in kosher legal, but it's not something that somebody's proud of. And not only that, but that he could have made such a grievous decision. Like he, he was saying that now her punishment is she has to die and she had done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Again, it was a little weird looking, but okay, that's a hard thing to have to do. And as much as it seems obvious to us that anyone would have to admit it, how could you let someone die? Such things have happened many times, probably more times than anyone has admitted that they were wrong about them. They would rather just say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's not possible. I can't. Okay. So when he said, Sad Kamimeni, she's right, I'm wrong. He was forgiven for any wrongdoing with regard to this situation. And when the Malachim saw, the Malachi Asheres, the serving angels, saw that Yehuda opened his mouth, admitted he was wrong, and was immediately forgiven, they said, they opened their mouths and said, Baruch atoh Hashem chanun hamar belisloach. That's our bracha. Mm-hmm. Right? So now we've seen this <laughs> with quite a few brachos, right? Where did the Malachim first sing out this bracha? It was when Yehuda said, Sad Kamimeni. Which is kind of an astonishing, astonishing idea. So we're called Yehudim. We're called, yeah, we are. We are Yehudim. And he's called Yehuda, which means that he can acknowledge. It's also the word lehodos, to acknowledge. Okay, so I just want to put like a, a label on here <laughs> so I can at least get them in afterward. 
later on when he spoke <coughs> uh, to Yosef about uh, yeah yes you know, it was he who spoke up yes about, okay um, Rabbi Yehuda ben Yakar who I believe was the Rebbe of the Ramban says even if a person does tshuva in every other way his tshuva is not complete until he's able to say out loud with his mouth and believe it in his heart and, and confess what he's done wrong this is one of the ikrim of it. And according to Hilchos Tshuva, it's, it's the first step, right? The first step in, in Tshuva is admitting you did something wrong and being able to say it. You have to say it out loud. What we say, vidui is bapeh. Confession your, is always with the mouth. To yourself, you don't have to say to somebody. Yeah. You don't you have to publicize yourself, it necessarily. Right. That might be a right. very bad idea. Exactly. Right, okay. <laughs> it's a look in the mirror. It's, I did this. Right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So this, this idea continues on. The Midrash in Bamidbar says that Bilam, uh, it, it, it points out, the verse says that Bilam saw a malach, right? We know Bilam was riding on the donkey, right? And the donkey yes. saw the malach and would not go further. Bilam didn't see it. And eventually the malach became visible to him and he could see the malach. So when he sees the malach and the malach's like holding the flaming sword and says, yeah, you're really coming this way, you know, the, oh, maybe. Vayomer bilam el malach Hashem chatasi. He said, I've sinned. Strange person to learn tshuva from, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> so why did he say, I sinned? What was he thinking? First of all, um, think about what kind of tshuva is this? Because what's the sin? He didn't say. Mm. Well, what's the sin is that he's going against what God's will is and he's going to curse the people. And what does he do after he meets the Malach? He, he still goes to try and curse the people. And when that's not so successful, so he tries to figure out how to get them to sort of curse themselves by sinning. Okay, so this is not exactly a sterling example of somebody who has changed their life and gotten back on the right track through their tshuva, and yet he does say chatosi, and he says it to the malach. So mm -hmm. I want to point out there's kind of this interesting little thread here where the malachim are watching, they see Yehuda says vidui, and they sing this sort of glory to God who is Hanun Hamar Belisloach, who forgives those who do tshuva specifically with vidui. In other words, it's this little piece of the vidui that's so powerful in the tshuva over here. Okay, so Bilam is now facing a malach, a, something of a punishing or scary malach, it seems, right? It's got the sword and, okay. And he says, chatasi. So why does he say chatasi, I've sinned? Because he was a Russia, but he was a smart Russia. Bilam was intelligent. He was just wicked. And he was a prophet. So there was a lot of stuff he knew, even if he didn't like it or didn't want to live that way or wanted to see if he could get around it. Okay, he felt rebellious. He knew that there's one thing that can stand between a person and punishment or suffering. 
that the Malach is bringing to him. And that's tshuva. If some, call me, Shechote, this is the Medrash, whoever sins, the Omer Chatasi, but says, I've sinned. A person who sins, but can admit that they've sinned. Ein Rishos Lamalach Ligabo. The Malach does not have permission to touch him. Now, this is like, I don't really understand this. Bilam is an example. This is something he realized. There's a Malach standing there waiting to punish me. If I say I've sinned, and it's true, meaning if I, if I confess what I've done wrong, the Malach won't touch me. Is that going to stop me from going and doing it again? Maybe not. It's not really tshuva. It's just the power of the confession itself. The power of admitting that you're wrong and you've sinned, that itself stops the Malach from being able to touch him. So I'm, I think that this um, is associated with something that we saw a long time ago. It's in the Tzidka Satsadik. It's from Rav Tzadik HaKohen. And we, I'm trying to remember where the topic was that we talked about. It had to do with anxiety and fear, right? Where Rav Tzadok says, it's not like right in front of me. Um... Rav Tzadok says that when, when a person sins, right, we have everything in the world, there's like these different worlds, and things always correspond. Anything in the physical world corresponds to its roots as it comes down from the spiritual world. Everything exists on all these different planes. Let's make it out here. This whole confession business, is that where maybe the Catholics or Christians, whatever it is, have that confession? Imagine so. That, I mean, that, that there's a, some power, that there's a redemptive power just to saying that you've Is said. that what that whole thing is I about? imagine. I'm, I don't know too much about Catholic confession, yeah. right? So but imagine that that's Martha's here. She'll tell us. Yeah, because Sarah just said something about just the fact that you confess to the priest. Well, even if you just confess to yourself, you can't, it, you know, you're not, you're not. It has a power. There's a power to being able to say out loud, I did the wrong thing, I was wrong. Yeah. So that's what she was saying. Maybe that's the source of the idea in the Catholic Church that people should confess what they did wrong to get forgiven. It's a little different because... Well, we, we have to confess to the priest because right. the priest is, you know, a connection between us and So God. it lessens the punishment if you confess. You have to pray after that? Yes. It does. Uh-huh. After you tell the priest, and the priest will tell you um, how many our fathers you have uh-huh. to uh, pray. Ha- or what you got to do. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have to repent, of course. Right. And then you're forgiven. So here do we also do, chew, we also do some type of chew before and after. Right. But just, the focus right here is just the vidui. Just the vidui. But the paragraph before was saying, Hashem, please return us in chuva. Mm-hmm. But the first step in chuva is always first being able to say, I sinned. Mm-hmm. I did the wrong thing. Yeah. Right? We say it between us and God. We don't yeah. have a concept it's of anyone who's an intermediary. But it's the first step. Right. How can you ever get anywhere? Right. Okay, so Rav Tzadok had this, this concept that just like you have a frog in this world and there's a spiritual malach of a frog in another world, it doesn't look green or brown and have a puffy neck and say ribbit, 
right? The force that creates the malach is not look that creates a frog doesn't look like a frog in the spiritual worlds, but each thing has its layer, right? There's some level at which it looks like an illustration of Baruch Shem Kavod Malchus which is the shira of a frog. So each mm-hmm. at each level, it has its own expression. He says when a person sins, that expresses itself at the different levels of the world. On the emotional level, that comes out as anxiety and fear. Right? You remember this? This has come up a couple of times, I think. Um, originally, it was a Yom Kippur share, but I think it's come up since then. Um, at another level, it's Yisurim, the suffering, right? And the point of that, Martha, so he says at each level, because the result of the sin, the, for, the malach that's great, just like every time you do a mitzvah, you create a malach, a, a good malach that represents you for the good, but when you do something wrong, it creates another kind of malach. The only thing is, a malach is always a divine force. It's always in service of God, right? A malach doesn't have the free will to just not do what God wants, which means that the force created by a sin seeks to push you into tshuva and fixing itself so that it can, become a, it can be a force for good. It is a force. The malach is a force for good. So even though the malach is created from a sin, the effect of the malach will be to try and push a person back. And so therefore, that a malach of a sin will be expressed as yisurim, as some kind of suffering on a, on a force level, and it will be expressed as anxiety on an emotional level, where a person feels anxious about what will happen, whether or not there's any truth to it, whether or not there's any facts of anything bad happening. Okay, Just the feeling of the fear can be an outcome of sin that's trying to put a person back on track and do tshuva. Okay. So, this idea that if a person says, Chatasi, I have sinned, now the malach can't touch him. I don't know for sure that we're talking about the same phenomenon, but I wouldn't be surprised. What Rav Tzadok was explaining about how the malach created by the sin is the same malach that causes the retribution for the sin, the suffering of the sin, right? Our sins cause their own suffering. But if a person says, Chatasi, does the sin have to cause any suffering to get you back on track? Apparently not. Apparently that was enough. The sense that you have sinned can be enough to put you back on track. Or the fear of punishment because you've sinned can be enough to put you back on track. Or the actual yasurim could be enough to put you back on track. It's up to you when you listen and when you say, Oi, Hashem, I sinned. I did something wrong. Here's what I did wrong. And here's how I'm going to fix it. The first step, of course, is here's how I did wrong. So the Medrash seems to be telling us, once a person says chatasi, the malach isn't going to touch him anymore. I mean, then Bilam can go and sin again, you know, and then he ends up getting killed. But at that moment, okay, and, and the, at that moment is something we may get to, but maybe not today, the malach is then held back because it's not needed. The job is done. Okay, so Bilam said Chatasi. Sorry? 
came down and said, I can't take yes. sinning about you. Right, right. He right away, he immediately said, I sinned. Yes. That's considered a sign of righteousness. What's surprising is that Bilaam says he sinned. Yes. Now, he wasn't so immediate, <laughs> right? He kept ignoring all the hints, right? He even ignored the talking donkey. But, yes. but eventually he said, Khatasi. The reason Bilaam did it wasn't because he was smitten with regret. Clearly wasn't smitten with regret. The reason Bilaam did it was once he could not ignore that there was a Malach standing there waiting to punish him. So then he was afraid of the punishment. So he thought to himself, what's the least I can do? What is the minimum step that I can take to not get my head chopped off by this fiery sword? And the answer was, <laughs> well, just say chatasi. So he did. Okay. <laughs> he was, he, that's what it says. He was a Russia. He was Arum. Okay. Arum as in clever, sort of wily, like the snake is described that way in, in Ganeid. And that's how Bilaam's described by the Madras. He wasn't forgiven, but the Malach couldn't touch him. There was nothing to forgive. He didn't say... He didn't say, I'm sorry. He just said, I sinned. <laughs> it's step one. That's interesting in itself. That, I mean, he wasn't forgiven, but he was protected. He didn't ask to be forgiven. Okay, but he said, I sinned. So he's like... So now the sin itself is not going to attack him because okay. it's not necessary okay. to get his attention to the fact he sinned. Okay, okay. now he's aware he's that already. he sinned. Okay. He's aware that he sinned. So that's not... Yeah. So okay. that's okay between him and God. Uh-huh. All right. So Sifte Tzadik, which in this case is a grandson of the Chedushe Harim. He says like this. He says, Bilam said chatasi. And that's what's quoted in that medrash that we just said. Lehodia shahaya rasha gamor. We should know the medrash is telling us that he was a complete rasha. You know, it's one thing to be a rasha. It's another thing to be a complete rasha. The yada she'ein omed bifnei ha'porna salachuva. He was a complete rasha, but he happened to know this piece of information that nothing stands between a person and his suffering other than tshuva. And whoever says, I've sinned, there's no permission for the malach to touch him. From this, you know, you could read into the medrash and see between the lines how very small and insignificant his tshuva was. There's not a lot of tshuva involved in Bilaam's tshuva. The kivan The only effect was that the malach couldn't actually reach out and touch him. That's what he achieved. He was satisfied, but that's what he achieved. And nonetheless, with this tiny little bit of tshuva, the Torah saw fit to preserve the fact that he said chatasi for all generations. That we should learn from that. Even from a Russia, if, if even a complete Russia who has no regret could achieve something by saying chatasi, then that should tell us something about where our tshuva could take you us. You can say, with, with no regret, you can still say... It's true, I, I was wrong. wrong. I was wrong. But not regret it. Yeah, because if you we might... see prisoners say that. It could they be. go, you know... I'm sorry I do it, but I'm sorry I did it, but if I had to but do if it again, I, I'd I still would probably do just do it again, right? Because yeah. nothing's changed like, inside. Know, yeah, I'm still angry that I murdered him, That's but right. I'm sorry that I murdered him. Right, I wish him. I hadn't because I, I would rather not be in jail. Yeah, but so I if I hadn't done it, I, I wouldn't be here now. Yeah, so but the truth is I would do it again, especially if I thought I could get away with it. 
That's really what it is, right? The anger is still there. The anger is there. Or, yeah, like, if I wouldn't get caught, then I would do it. Like, I don't actually regret doing it. It's more like, I regret the punishment. I don't like to be punished. You're saying there's a redeeming value to even just the regret. To even just the admission admission. that I did wrong. Mm -hmm. Even that, now, if that's as far as it goes, how much does he achieve by the Malach not touching him? If he doesn't do tshuva. I don't know, like, this is stuff I don't understand, right? But I don't know. So he goes to the next world taking his punishment with him? Is that better? Like, instead of just getting punished in this world? So now it's all, I, like, I don't know that it's such a... Is there a, a difference, which we don't know, from the Malach punishing you versus an ultimate punishment? I, yeah, absolutely. Especially because this was while, during his lifetime. He's alive. It's temporary. Whatever the it Malik, is, whatever the Malik, I'm sorry, whatever, whatever the Malik this Malach was going to do to him, this not one, this world? no, this Malach in, yeah. about Bilam yeah. is standing yeah. there during yeah. his lifetime. It's Olam Hazeh. Oh, Anything that happens in Olam Hazeh is for so sure going to be. Think there's a what we do believe there's Malach sending us little messages. A hundred percent. Yeah, a Malach is how Hashem sends us messages. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Shaliach. Okay, so you could have a little Malach here preventing you from getting a ticket or something. Yeah. You know. I'm saying uh, whatever force it is that Hashem sends, yeah. that's called a malach. Right. Okay. So, but from this, <coughs> back to the Sifte Tzadik, Mizel Limud Atzum, he says there is a very powerful lesson in this. Shalo yomar adam adayin eni muchan l'tshuva. A person should never say to himself, look, I, I, I know you got to do tshuva, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not there yet. Uchadoma terutsim. And these kinds of excuses that people make to themselves. They're overwhelmed. They're, it's, it's hard to, they're embarrassed. They don't know where to start. They're too comfortable with their sin. So they don't really, you know. Hakol hevel. All these excuses are just empty. Rak bechol es. Psuchim share tshuva afshaloli shma. The gates for tshuva are always wide open at all times, even for a person whose tshuva is not very heartfelt. (laughs) Even if your tshuva is just, you know, we've said like the lower level of tshuva, which is not low. The basic level of tshuva is tshuva meyira, a person who's afraid of, of, um, who's afraid. A person's afraid of their sickness, okay? A person is afraid of, of sickness or worse, right? So they dive into Hashem and they say, please, I'm, I'm going to do tshuva. I'll do better. And they mean it. That's a kind of tshuva. That's real tshuva. Tshuva meira, right? We had this, I think Mrs. Khan and I talked about this last week, about tshuva from fear. And there was a higher level, which is tshuva from love. But tshuva from fear is real tshuva. Okay? And he's saying there's even lower levels of tshuva. Tshuva where the person would rather not do tshuva, but there's somebody holding a flaming sword to his neck. So he'll say, okay, okay, I'm sorry, right? The gates of tshuva are open all the time, no matter what. The truth is, every sin creates a destructive force, may God preserve us, that, that stands by to ambush his soul. Just like Bilam had a malach standing there, that Malach didn't come from nowhere. That Malach was a result of Bilam's own actions. So, 
And that Malach is what's standing there to ambush him, as is described in the Sefer Tomer Devorah. And one sin tends to beget another sin, and chas v'shalom, a person just goes down this bad path and is creating all these forces of his own that are standing there destroying himself. But by returning and crying out, chatosi, I sinned. Ein lahem od those malachim have no ability to touch him. He says, what does it mean the malach will touch him? He says, you know what kind of, you know what the worst thing is a malach could do to you? It's not a flaming sword. <laughs> the worst thing that a malach of your own sin could do to you is to take you by the hand to do another sin. But when a person says khatasi, <coughs> then the sin doesn't touch him. The sin doesn't have to bring him to another one and another one and another one of Vera Gorera Savera. And this is what the Medrash is teaching us. The Zohar says, if a person is explicit, if a person lists specifically his sins before God, this is, this is saying chatasi, but it's not just ki chatanu, right? It's like saying, I, I've sinned. Remember we said, like, it's not just I'm sorry, but I'm sorry that I used your jacket without permission. Okay? When a person says explicitly what his sins are before God, mirachim alav, Hashem has rachimim on him, his mercy on him. Umizgavrim harachimim al hadin. And the quality of mercy gets, is allowed to be stronger than the quality of the judgment. The Alkane, and therefore, vidui chatav hu kavod hamelech. When a person confesses his sins and admits to them out loud and specifically, that gives honor to the king. How does it give honor to the king? Okay, because if a person does something wrong, the king says, don't run the red light. You got to stop when there's a red light. And a person goes against the red light. So what he's saying is, I don't really care what the king wants. I want to do what I want. That's a slap in the face of the covet of the king. That's a, pulling it down. So when a person says, I was wrong, I should have stopped at the red light. If only because you said to that adds honor to the king. Now the Zohar is going another step in saying that the, the adding honor to the king, the way that looks is when Rachamim can overcome Din. That's also an honor to God, which is definitely outside my, the scope of my uh, knowledge. So I won't follow that train of thought. But this idea that we can rectify by admitting what we've done and saying so explicitly, we can rectify what the, the true damage, <coughs> excuse me, the true damage of the sin, because the true damage of the sin is that we have damaged God's honor. And God's honor is demonstrated into the world when we do what his will is because it's his will. When people see you wear you know, a hair covering or you don't eat that food because you're Jewish, it's not kosher. We don't even think, how much honor are we giving to God? But the message people walk away with is, Jewish people don't eat that because God doesn't let them. 
that gives honor to him. It shows that his will is alive and real and a force in our lives. Okay, so we'll end with a couple notes just on the opening words here of Salachlanu. Whoops. Salachlanu. So the first thing we were going to point out is that we have kind of a, a set of parallels. We could almost have like a little table, you know. So on one side you have slach lanu avinu ki chatanu. And then in parallel, mechal lanu malkenu ki fashanu. You can hear that they run together. Okay. So you have slicha, slach lanu, forgive us, is slicha, versus mechal lanu, which is mechila, which also means forgive us, but there must be a difference. One is slicha, one is mechila. The second part is Avinu, our father. And on the other, in the next phrase, you have Malkenu, our king. Hmm? Avinu, Malkenu, right? Okay. So Slicha somehow goes more with the Avinu, and Mechila goes more with Malkenu. And the sin is described as Chatanu, as a chait, with regard to our father and Slicha, and as Pesha, Pashanu, as Pesha which is a transgression with regard to Malkenu and Mechila. So we're not going to cover this whole topic today. Okay? But this is teasing apart the differences in the definitions and then understanding why this set of three goes together and isn't just mixed around with that set of three will help us understand better what we're saying. Okay, that's kind of the background. Okay, so Abu Darham. He says, Slicha connects with chait and to the father and mechila with pesha and the king. Why is that? Mipnesha calls the donos, this is kind of the fundamental passage and then everyone else builds out from here. Mipnesha calls the donos she'ose habain domos lifnei ha'av kishgagos because every willful sin that the child does appears in the father's eyes like an unintended sin. Okay, amazed looks to the father like a shogig. It's not because the father is blind. It's more down the cuffs close. There's more compassion. It's he doesn't really know what he's doing. Or he hasn't learned. He's like blinded to it. Right, but God isn't blind to it, so... So the, the part of it that's that extra compassion, and one reason parents are blind is because they want to see what's good in the right. child, right? So that is relevant, meaning Hashem wants to see what's good in us. And because of that, he, he says, you know, they're doing it intentionally. It's not really intentional. They're not doing it intentionally to be insulting. They just don't realize how bad it really is. Okay, if they if they knew better, they wouldn't do it. So uh, so we have to educate him more. Okay, that's the relationship with the father. So a chait is a sin, but it's not as bad. Okay. He can he can lighten them in his own eyes, to forgive them. Just like the word chait describes a less severe transgression than the word pesha. domos 
but to the king, from the perspective of being a king, then even the unintentional sins of the nation appear as intentional. Meaning, I told you not to, and they do it anyway. I told you to stop at all the red lights, and they go with the red lights. Yeah. Or not, not, not in the middle. I'm not going to look at it now. I'll look at it after. Okay. I told you not to, and they do it anyway. The king says... And they say, oh, we didn't realize, we didn't know, we didn't read the driver's handbook, the policeman didn't warn us first. It's like, you violated my will, that's all. It's your job to know what, if you're going to drive, you got to know what the rules are. So you can't claim you didn't know. You mean you didn't know. So read the handbook. If If you don't know all the rules, right? So from the point of view of the judge and the king, what, even if something was not, fully intentionally rebellious, the king looks and sees, and and by the way, these are both true ways of looking. Mm -hmm. You can't really say that the father side is more real than the melech side. They're both right. They're both legitimate. To look at somebody who's doing something even rebellious and say, you know, he doesn't really (laughs) understand what he's doing. If he really understood how much I'm, I'm telling him for his own sake and his own development, you know, but kid, do kids really understand that? Like you tell them, I'm doing this for your sake. I want you to grow up to be a good, honest person and have good relationships. And they're like, of course I'm going to like, they don't, <laughs> right. It's not, even if I don't listen to you, I'm going to be good. Right. They don't understand that their actions actually develop them into this other kind of person. But at the same time, the way the king looks at it and says, you know, there isn't really any excuse at all. Because you can't say, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to insult you. It wasn't what was on my mind. Just the fact that you weren't thinking about what my will is is enough of an insult to my will. It's also not listening. So you can't get around it. As the king says, <laughs> So with regard to our relationship to Hashem as our king, we say, <laughs> We've transgressed, which is worse. Pesha is worse than chait. <laughs> and mechila, that kind of forgiveness, not slicha, but mechila, is the term used when you have to kind of really ask someone who's makbid and medaktik al chavero or al avdo sheyimcholo abono. Mechila means when you have to ask somebody who is particular, that who's bothered by what you did, and you need to ask him to forgive the insult of what you did. It's not, it's not just the action, it's the insult, right? So if you park in a legal parking space and you put money in the meter and you're five minutes late coming back, right? You don't like really have to beg the meter person. Meaning they give you a ticket, they won't give you a ticket, but like, it's not that you've insulted them, right? But when you've done something that's an insult to the other person's will or their honor, and they notice that and and that matters to them, then you have to ask forgiveness, right? Whereas slicha seems to be, according to the way the Abu Darham is, is slicha is what, the father, the father will bring that in himself. He'll let it go. The kind of forgiveness, it's a different kind of forgiveness. He's not forgiving an insult to his honor because he doesn't think there was an insult to his honor or his, or his covet. He wasn't trying to insult my covet. 
He did something wrong, but it wasn't directed against me. Whereas with the Melech, no, that is directed against the Malchus, the kingdom altogether, the, the law of the land, and therefore you need to like show that you are asking forgiveness for the insult to that, for bringing down the, the honor. Okay, so with the father, who isn't so particular, we say, Slachlanu, forgive us. He's not, once the slicha happens, there's no hard feelings left at all. Nothing. It's, it's as if it never happened. With the mechila, it depends. How much forgiveness did you ask for? How much did you mean it? That's how much you could correct it. And some people explain this bracha as saying, Slachlanu avinu ki chatanu, that the word ki means like even though. So forgive us our father even though we've sinned. Forgive us our king even though we have transgressed. Because you are the king who forgives. And that corresponds to the Pasuk Yata, Hashem Tov Blessed is Hashem Chanun Hamar Belisloach. Okay, so I'll stop here. That's going to be this, this, um, this Abu Darham, I think, provides the basic foundation that most of the other commentary on the bracha builds out of. So that, that takes us there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.